The purpose of the university is literally universal. It's to study absolutely everything and then to ground it in our relationship to all those things. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. On today's episode, Acton librarian and research associate Dan Huger sits down with Acton Research Fellow and the executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, Dylan Palman, to talk about education for a free society. They begin with the 18th century vision of education for a free society advanced by America's founders. Why do they believe education was necessary for a free society, and what kind of education did they have in mind? The discussion then turns to 19th century Christian attempts in Europe to build institutions of liberal learning by St. John Henry Newman, F.D. Maurice, and Abraham Kuyper. What new innovations did these founders introduce to educate students and foster human flourishing? How did their approaches differ, and where were their continuities? What can we learn from these visions of education to address the crisis in education today? You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, librarian and research associate with the Acton Institute, and today I'm joined by Dylan Palman, uh, research fellow and uh, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. This Acton line's going to be a little different than most of our shows because it's going to be just Acton folks here. We in the research department at Acton do a lot of work on education. We are doing, you know, our own writing, our own speaking. Uh, teaching courses. We've got several people in the department teaching courses this semester at different institutions. And we also work a lot with students and faculty across colleges and universities. We do grants, these sorts of things. And we've been thinking a lot about education in the department lately, and we've been having arguments about it. And they've been really, really fun arguments. And we thought it would be great to sort of tease out some of those different arguments, some of those perspectives here on Acton Line. And in this, in this first installment of that, uh, Dylan Palm and I are going to be talking a little bit about what do we mean when we talk about a liberal education or an education for a free society? Um, and then we're going to go through a couple of different historical perspectives on that in the 19th century. We're going to talk a little bit about St. John Henry Newman. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, F.D. Uh, Morris uh, in the Working Man's College. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about Abraham Kuyper in the Free University in the Netherlands. We'll bring in some other fun 19th century figures like Thomas Huxley. Um, and it should be an interesting conversation. But I wanted to open it up having us consider when we, when we talk about liberal education – 
we often frame it in terms of that it's necessary for a free society. Let's unpack that a little bit. Let's, let's maybe begin by talking about what it is, what a free society is, and then why education might be essential to that. Yeah, so I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Um, free society, of course, is something very essential to our American understanding and really to, you know, what we would call the free world, the, the Western world, the first world, um, and the sort of thing that we here at Acton hope for everyone. Um, and there's, there's a lot of confusion even internally. What do we mean by that? So some people um, understand freedom in a very uh, negative sense in terms of just nobody, nobody harms anyone else and that should be good enough. Um, but actually, classically, it's a little more complicated, a little more nuanced. Um, so most of the founding fathers, you can find statements where they talk about the importance of morality and religion for a truly free society, that people need uh, self-control and piety in order to be free and to live free lives. Um, and what that gets you is a picture a little different than, you know, the sort of thing that John Stuart Mill advocated. It gets you something like ordered liberty. So our um, former uh, director of research here, and he's now at uh, AIAR, uh, Sam Gregg, wrote a book called On Ordered Liberty. Um, and in it, he talks, he talks, uh, he talks quite a bit about this. He deals with, with Mill as well as others. And, uh, and he talks about it in terms of self-government, right? So if you're going to have a free society, it's not just everybody's free to do whatever they want. Um, it's that people are free to govern themselves. Um, governing means that, you know, sometimes you have to keep people in line who are not just harming others, um, but who are doing things that will detract um, from your ability to govern yourselves, doing things that would require a higher level institution um, in accordance with, say, the principle of subsidiarity to come in and intervene and set things right. Um, so by free society, that's more what I would have in mind and what, what I think is, is a better and really more historically grounded. I mean, you can find in, in among British writers, too, John Milton would be an example, um, Edmund Burke, of course. Um, and so and, and of course, Lord Acton. Lord Acton said uh, he talked about the Catholic view of liberty, which is not the freedom to do whatever you like, but the right to do what you ought um, that's a very different understanding of what a free society is. Um, he also framed it in terms of the reign of conscience, right? That to, to be free, to follow your conscience, of course, means that you're bound by your conscience and you have a well-formed conscience that is binding you correctly. Um, so what it leads to, and again, you see this among the American founders, uh, things like... Uh, the, the Northwest, Northwest Ordinance uh, talks about the provision of education um, in, in what is modern Midwest today. Um, uh, Benjamin Rush, uh, in his uh, uh, advice to uh, the state of Pennsylvania for developing an education system, also, you know, his second bu first bullet point is it's good for religion uh, to have educated people. Why? Well, because it's still largely Protestant country at the time. And you need literacy in order to be able to read the Bible, in order to be able to read theological books and so on. Um, and, and then he says, secondly, it's good for liberty, 
right? So that people can have informed opinions. If you're living in a democratic society where people are voting, they need to know what they're voting about or where they're getting elected and they're representing people. They need to, they need to have some kind of basic knowledge or at least the ability to gain the knowledge they need uh, in order to govern properly, in order to advocate for the interests of their constituencies. And so he, he, he advocates for the, this wide proliferation of education, really something that has no historical precedent before it, that the United States' unique free polity really motivated the spread of you know, primary, secondary, and even higher education um, in a way that hadn't quite... Uh, you know, been in place before. Um, things like liberal education, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a minute, um, was more, you know, if you happen to be the son of an aristocrat, you got to go study at Oxford or something like that. And that was about the only people they were getting that kind of higher education. Um, and while a lot of people through the 19th century, of course, did just stop after high school, even getting high school was, was itself a privilege, um, even getting that kind of secondary level of education. Um, so, that's the relation, the, the very basic relation of if you have all of these people are supposed to be self-governing and participating in their government, they have to have a certain education that gives them the skills, the abilities, the, the habit of mind needed to be effective citizens in that society. And therefore, you need some kind of education for liberty or liberal education. So you've got, you know, in, in colonial Massachusetts, of course, you have the old deluder Satan law, which is targeted towards achieving a sort of mass literacy in primary schooling. Why? So children can read the scriptures. Yeah. Swami Vivekananda talks about how, you know, there isn't a religion in the face of the earth that has survived without a book. Yeah. And so, the, the, so this becomes very important to religion, which is in turn very important to self-government, which then is important to... The governance in general. When we govern together, we govern best when we're self-governed. Um, Lord Acton liked to define liberty as uh, the assurance that every man shall be protected in doing what he believes his duty against the influence of authority and majorities, customs, and opinion. Mm -hmm. That is a, is, establishes the reign of conscience, which is not, you know, this Every man does what's right in his own eyes, but it's yeah. the harmony of religion and law. It is that compatibility and necessity of human freedom to work out sort of um, your obligations and responsibilities both to God and to society at large. Now, <laughs> we talk a little bit about, you know, in the United States, you have a place like the Northwest Ordinance, which actually precedes our constitution. This was something that uh, came about during uh, our period under the Articles of Confederation. Mm -hmm. And it enshrines this. And this is a time period where we're looking at the late 18th century when this is happening. And it's really in the 19th century that we start seeing People really talking, really debating, really trying to implement these sorts of things. You have it very early on in Germany, the founding of the, the, of the, of the University of Berlin mm -hmm. along these lines and that, again, late 18th, early 19th century. And you have, you have people, secular thinkers thinking about this. You've got religious thinkers thinking about this. Um, and... 
you've got a couple different threads there. And one of the things that we've talked about before is um, I think you're very incisive and in you like there's there's the seeds of you know everybody's thinking through this question then for the for the sort of like first time trying to think about it at scale for mm-hmm. the first time um, there's always been schools you know the Stoa in, in ancient Greece you know you have you know these philosophers run schools but these schools are not for the masses they're not educating for you know educating the masses for self-governance 19th century that starts to change and people start to think about it anew and they start talking very self-consciously about this need for a liberal education but there's no one model of that People are sort of iterating. They're trying new things. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you've surveyed a lot of these. Um, what's striking to you? What are, what, are, what, are the, what are the mistakes that are made? Yeah. What were the promising roads uh, traveled more or less successfully? What are we looking at when we're looking at these Christian theorists trying to mm-hmm. think through what a liberal education is. So I just I love the 19th century in general. It's just so it's one of the last times I feel like we had uh, a wealth of truly encyclopedic thinkers, people who could just say something intelligent about kind of everything, and uh, that includes. Uh, the foundations of in the structuring of, or maybe we could say the constitution of a liberal university. Um, so one of the most well-known um, would be uh, John Henry Newman, uh, who you mentioned. Um, and his view very much represents kind of the older view. It's, it's, he draws on Aristotle. He's not he's not incorrect in his this reading is, of Aristotle. A lot of these are um, lectures. Yes, these are lectures. Called yes. uh, the idea of the university. Correct. Yep. This is the Catholic University in in Dublin mm-hmm. that has an interesting history. Yes. But yeah, but today yeah. it's University College of Dublin. Um, and yeah, he so he talks about he has one lecture on knowledge as an end in itself, um, and. On the one hand, he gives something very familiar in terms of liberal education. He says, you know, a university, a truly liberal university, should be this place where you have experts in all these different disciplines, and they're all through, you know, their own striving, even their own competition and disagreements and discussion. They are contributing to a greater whole of human knowledge, right? Um, so there's there's this understanding of their own academic freedom. Um, their, their, the, the benefit they have from discussing and arguing and competing with one another. And then, of course, the benefit the students get uh, from studying under them and from b- witnessing that and becoming part of that conversation. So that, to that degree, I think he's great. Um, and he gives a really good definition of, yes, that's, that's you know, not often the reality anymore, but that is at least the ideal of what people think of in a, in a very general sense. But then he goes on and he draws from Aristotle. And again, he's not wrong in his reading of Aristotle. I just happen to disagree with Aristotle. Um, uh, so I'll get into that. But he says, you know, for liberal education, for it to be liberal, it means it can't be enslaved. And uh, for him, like, you know, li- uh, liberal arts are the art of someone who doesn't have to work Basically, it, it is for aristocrats. It is for a very small elite. It is for people who are already free 
they can come and, you know, refine their intellect and enjoy the fruit of that, which he defines as just an end in itself. Well, you can see how this is somewhat out of, uh, out of agreement with, you know, the American founders um, and, and certainly what, what developed in the 19th century, where they wanted every citizen to be educated, at least to some degree. Now, again, he is talking about a university. They were talking a little more broadly, so I want to be fair there as well. Um, but still, uh, their whole point was you need a liberal education to have a free society. It exists for the end of making a person free and making a person a responsible participant in free society. It's not that they have to first be this free citizen and then they can have a liberal education. So um, I personally look at that as kind of getting the cart before the horse. And the reason why, um, A, I, I mean, I just, I agree with the basic logic of we should educate citizens in a, in a democratic society, but also uh, you can look at the, the historical record. Um, and that is today we have a certain crisis in the university. Well, actually we have a lot of crises in the university. We can't cover all those, but one of them is the crisis of the humanities. Uh, the humanities are really struggling to uh, prove their legitimacy in a lot of ways. People don't get it anymore, which is too bad. And it's something I personally uh, lament. I think, I think, Studying literature and philosophy and, of course, theology, which is my own discipline, is very, very valuable. Um, but to, whenever I hear anyone try to defend it, they usually give a similar sort of reasoning to Newman. They say, well, this knowledge is an end in itself. But then people get the bill and they say this can't just be an end in itself because, like, where's the return on investment? And so you could you could if you want to. And some people do. You could go after the business model of modern universities or at least Christian schools, perhaps. Um, but the other side could be that maybe that was not the best way of defending the, the goodness of the liberal arts. Let's let's take a step back yeah. because this is one of the innovations at the Catholic University of Ireland. It starts out with five faculties. Mm. There is a faculty of philosophy, mm-hmm. a faculty of theology, a faculty of medicine, a faculty of law, and then a faculty of letters, which okay. is the innovative thing, which okay. is the humanities yes. that everybody's talking about are in crisis today mm-hmm. and the rest of it. But those other disciplines actually have a longer pedigree that is in true. universities. Yes. And, and let's talk a little bit about why that is. Yeah. And, and because this gets at mm-hmm. why this 19th century is innovative, not only in, in, in expanding access to education, potentially, yeah. um, but also in expanding the breadth of the curriculum and the academic disciplines engaged in the university. Yeah. So I, I should say to be clear, he does, he talks more about liberal, liberal knowledge is what he says, which he calls gentleman's knowledge. Um, not specifically he, you know, letters or humanity. So he, he uses theology as an example. Um, but you're right. Theology, law, medicine, philosophy have a longer pedigree, um, because they come out of, really the medieval era. Um, And a lot of them began, even in the United States, like Harvard and Yale, they were seminaries, Princeton seminary. And then it became in the 19th century, a liberal university. So you have this expansion and and Newman is uh, a a part of that. 
Um, or at least, uh, you know, he's one, he's one, he was he first president or first rector? First rector. Yeah. yeah. Um, Um, so he's giving these lectures and he's kind of promoting a a very Catholic in in his view. Well, it is Catholic. It might not be the Catholic, but it's a a Catholic, uh, understanding the university. And he's, he treats every subject throughout these lectures. And I, I don't, you know, I, I haven't gotten into all the details of, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but what's interesting to me is he uses theology as an example of this exists as an end in itself, which I love. I and mean, it's so lofty. I, I understand the ideal. I love the ideal, but I just think it's wrong. Um, for one thing, certainly God exists as an end in himself, but human beings are contingent by nature. And the things human beings do are contingent. Um, everything should be directed towards the glory of God. You know, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, but as far as educating a human being, it should not just be an end in itself. It should be hopefully for the common good, um, for the good of the relationships that that person inhabits, including all the way up to the whole society. Um, so that's where I, I take issue with Newman. And theology is traditionally what we might call today was a vocational route. It was. The reason one would study theology yeah. was for ministerial preparation. Yeah, so very interestingly, about um, about 30 years later, a little less than that, Thomas Huxley, the uh, biologist um, and friend of Charles Darwin and kind of um, somewhat combative defender of the theory of evolution, um, he was... Uh, professed agnostic and sometimes anti-religious, uh, he became rector of the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, and he gave a lecture on um, on kind of his understanding of, of you know, the university. Um, it was, it's something like have the right ideals of a university. Um, and in there, interestingly, his anti-religious sentiment doesn't really come out except for a very casual, casual and fashionable anti-Catholic, anti-Jesuit sort of thing. But like you could have gotten that from a Protestant, not just an agnostic at the time. Um, and he talks about wanting to have a faculty of natural science. That's his discipline. Uh, And he's actually anxious about this. He says, you know, theology, medicine, law, these are technical schools, right? They exist to train clerics, you know, ministers, um, lawyers, judges, civil servants, and, you know, of course, doctors, nurses. Um, So there's a very clear vocational path that he sees attached to every other faculty. And then he starts kind of sweating over, like, what if someone wants to study biology? What do I tell them? They can't make money. They can't have a career doing this, you know. And so he's, he's trying to figure out a way to justify how can we hopefully secure some endowment to have a faculty of natural science that will someday prove its vocational worth and that that will justify its existence within the university structure. So I don't know that he would be as, as you know, fully democratic as uh, an American or anything like that, but he definitely has a, a more vocational understanding of what the university is doing. And, and I mean, I, I don't, I, so I like that aspect of it. And I, I find the very fascinating um, mirror image today in that today, Natural science is the S in STEM, right? Nobody doubts the value of going to study biology, right? Oh, a great major. You know, you'll, be, you'll do fine in life. Whereas theology now, uh, law and medicine are still doing fine, but theology now, everybody's like, well, what are you going to do with that? You know, if you're not going to be a pastor, what are you going to do with that? Um, 
And and so which in fairness was the same question in the Middle Ages. Yeah, but yeah, nobody that, <laughs> but nobody who was right. who was not going to become a pastor or a priest yes. or a monk <laughs> or a nun studied it. Right. Right. So I mean that could be part of the problem. Maybe we've expanded it to, you know, too many people. Um I'm not so much, I, I, I think we could talk about all the problems with the system today, but that might be a different podcast, uh, but maybe we'll get into it. We'll see. Um, but I just find it interesting that that shows you how much times have changed. That basically, um, I feel like both Huxley and Newman won out and it's been bad for theology and the humanities uh, and good for natural science. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing that people value natural science. I think it's it's very, there's been amazing uh, progress in the last, you know, 150 years since Huxley gave that lecture. And I think it's mostly been for the good of humanity and even the good of free society. Um, but I think, um, you know, in agreement with Newman and in agreement with um, the American founders, the humanities and even particular theology really matter and, and society will suffer um, if that goes away. Um, and if that can't find a way to become coherent once again in our understanding of what is a liberal education, what is a proper university. So we've talked a little bit about this at the level of elites. Part of part of Newman's project with um, the Catholic University in Ireland, which did not end well. Um, by 1880, it is basically defunct, is unable to acquire students for a set of complicated reasons. And Newman leaves for a set of complicated reasons. Um, it never – he never really has the sway that he hopes he would have there. So um, – and it ends up being part of sort of Catholic Protestant politics in Great Britain and all sorts of things. But you have you have other people whose visions um, are less about fostering sort of like a counter elite, um, as Newman's was, is to develop a sort of a sort of rigorous elite education for Roman Catholics in Great Britain and Ireland, which were the same thing at the time. Um, but there's but there's there's other moves afoot that yeah. have different rationales and different and different methods and then a different a different scope and one of those is the working man's college that's right so uh, I've done a little research on FD Morris in the last uh, year and a half or so FD Morris is uh, known as one of the founders of Christian socialism in Britain um, which I'm sure some leader you, you listeners uh, you know, will prick up and, and be immediately suspicious which is very understandable um, the good news is is that did not mean, at least for Morris, what you might assume. Now, he definitely, he what he did as a Christian socialist, it was a brief period that he was involved in this movement. It was from 1848 to 1854. Um, and he basically supported um, these Christian worker cooperatives. So they're actually kind of entrepreneurial endeavors, um, you know, focusing on profit sharing, things like that. They struggled to gain legal footing. Um, they struggled... In a lot of ways, they really, really were not ultimately profitable. Um, but in the process, he was trying to serve the working man of his neighborhood. And as much as uh, you know, we love to talk about the amazing boom in terms of uh, global wealth and even particular, you know, GDP, like individual earnings that has come since the industrial revolution and the the liberalization of trade and in domestic markets um, brought about by modern economics. 
um, it was hard going uh, in the process. Uh, there were rough, terrible conditions for people working in urban factories, and it was a very noble thing for Christian ministers like F.D. Morris, uh, like Charles Kingsley, um, like uh, his, their friend uh, who is uh, not a minister but a lawyer, uh, the barrister uh, John Ludlow. Um, they were driven by genuine Christian love for the poor to try to do something about it. Um, so, but Morris was significantly older than them um, and significantly more conservative than someone like Ludlow, at least. Um, and he was, he was actually very well educated, um, probably more so than, than a lot of people. In fact, he even interacted with Newman on occasion, had his disagreements. He was Anglican, um, so he probably saw Newman's journey and did not agree with every aspect of it, of course. Um, and, uh, but everyone interacted with, any, any intelligent person interacted with Newman in, in the 19th century. Um, and so... Morris is doing all this work, and he's leading weekly Bible studies. He's preaching at Lincoln's Inn. He is he has these biweekly conferences with labor leaders. He's part of the the Society for the Promotion of of Working Men's Associations, um, or uh, co- cooperative associations. Um, but then he publishes a book. He publishes several books, but he publishes his theological essays, which is meant to be a sort of kind of apologetic or even evangelistic work directed towards Unitarians. So a lot of the book is about defending the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, But he also gets into the question of universalism. And there he basically outs himself as a sort of soft universalist. I think there is nuance to his position, but not a lot of his readers picked up on his nuance. And uh, this this book uh, got on the Vatican's index of banned books, um, and it lost him his job at King's College. Um, and that was in 1854. And at that time, the people in his neighborhood, the workers he'd been working with for uh, six years now, um, came to him and said, we want to, in, including their investors, came to him and said, we want to found a college for the working men. Right. So not for the elites, but for the people working in factories all day. We want to give these people a liberal education. And they asked him to be the first president. And for him, he said, this is this is great. This is like the culmination of everything I've been doing with Christian socialism in the last six years. Other people like Ludlow thought it was tragic that, you know, instead of going on and trying to reshape their whole economy, now they were just going to, you know, channel the stream into this working men's college. Um, For Morris, I think it was an educational project all along. Um, It was not about class conflict. There's no evidence he even ever read Marx. He was well-read, and he cites his sources, and he never cites Marx, in my experience. Um, So that's not the sort of socialism that he's talking about. He's really talking about just kind of social cooperation, uh, maybe even in an underdeveloped sense compared to other socialists, but uh, from my perspective, for the better. Um, He defends private property as not just good, but holy. Um, and so he he becomes first president of the Working Men's College, and they teach everything. And he gives these six lectures called Learning and Working in support of it uh, to try to set forth the vision of the college and then, of course, raise um, funds and, and donors and interest as far as students and all of that. Um, in his fourth lecture, he talks about... Um, uh, the working man's college and, and society. So why, do you, why are we educating them? What effect do we think this is going to have? These are people working in, uh, you know, clothing factories and stuff like that. Why, why would you want this sort of person to have a liberal education? And it's interesting to note as well that Morris was so conservative, he was actually against democracy. 
Like, they had expanded the franchise in the 1830s, and, I mean, he accepted it as a fact, but he probably thought it was a mistake. <laughs> um, and yet he cared about these people. And, yeah, go ahead if you got— I mean, part of, part of that franchise expansion uh, in the, uh, in the uh, late 1820s, 1830s was to Roman Catholics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might have been part of the disappointment, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Although he's not, he's actually not that prejudiced for a writer of his time. So I, I don't know if that's exactly the issue, but, um, but he argues uh, that the whole point of giving people this education is we have to wake them up to the reality that they are persons. And as persons creating the image of God, they are free. That is the distinction between a person and a thing, right? Um, so, he, I mean, in a sense, there's a very Aristotelian grounding, perhaps, to his perspective as well. Um, but that's his point, is if we want to care for these people, it has to be more than just caring about their material conditions. It has to be body and soul. And so that's where he saw the Working Men's College as a far more appropriate channel for the, the kind of activist energy that had fueled Christian socialism for the, those six years. Um, and they taught really everything. He taught the theology and Bible classes, um, and other people taught, you know, things like Latin, law, um, medicine, home ec, uh, economics, who knows the quality of that economics course, but there was an economics course, uh, taught by their major funder, um, uh, Art, um, you know, drawing. John Ruskin, uh, unfortunately, was ta- taught drawing. But uh, John Ruskin, John Ruskin, he uh, was a good artist. Although, although yeah. he ca- <laughs> he's very profoundly wrong about many things. Many things. He's the bad he kind draw. of Christian socialist. But yes, <laughs> yes, he could draw. Um, uh, and I mean, only for a time. But he was there for a few years, um, and, and so on. So they, it really was a genuinely liberal education. And, and again, he, he grounds it in this idea of ordered liberty. So it's not just to make the working man understand that he is free and be able to live freely, but that he's also, through education, able to recognize an order inherent within the creation that God made, that God made an ordered world. In fact, this is one of the driving uh, fundamental foundations of Morris's whole theology, you know, for his his mature work, you know, starting in like the 1830s, um, that there's a divine order, uh, that God is inviting everyone to become part of his divine family in the church, um, and that for, for Morris, interestingly, his conception is very rooted in traditional Christian ideas and is not especially adapted for his current context. So he talks about how society begins in the family, and from, you know, the collection of families, eventually you get nations. Um, And then uh, with the coming of Christ, you get an international or transnational, uh, actually transnational is probably a better way of putting it in his view, um, institution, the spiritual society of the church. Um, And so you have family, state, church, and those are his main social categories, um, even up to his last work, um, Social Morality, in a second edition published in 1872, the year he died, I believe. Um, and that it's basically structured exactly that way. Part one, family, part two, state, part three, church. So he doesn't talk about like business or commerce separately from those things. Um, so there's, I think there's a real advantage to him in that he does say that one of the points of education is to get you to understand really the beauty of God's creation, the harmony, the order to it all and how it all relates together. Um, and yet there is maybe some deficiencies in, well, what, what does that consist of in our world today? Um, so I think he's, he's 
strangely, because like I said, he's he's not even he's kind of anti-democratic, but he's almost his vision, despite being British, is well adapted to kind of a, an American mindset. Um, the Working Men's College was the first of its kind in Europe, offering liberal education to working adults. Um, it was not people from aristocratic families. It was not, you know, the sons of aristocrats, you know, getting their refined education so they could go be civil servants or professors or clergy or whatever. This was people working in factories. He was trying to educate them. So to roll us back, one of the innovations, one of the new things, and not, not, not necessarily the first, and this is, this is true of, of, of all the examples we're talking about, but they are, they do represent sort of expansions of the knowledge of this liberal education. You see with Newman, the inclusion of letters. Mm -hmm. And you see now with Morris an expansion into arts and also into some things like home economics that typically today get excluded from this yeah. notion of liberal education. Um, do you get – are Huxley's ambitions realized at the Working Man's College? Are there natural sciences taught? So, yeah, I believe, I believe natural sciences are among the courses taught. So I don't know enough about like what their degree-granting process was like if they just had a general diploma or something like that to start. Um, it does still exist today as WM College, and they do have, of course, multiple majors and that sort of thing. Uh, but at the beginning, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, so that's a really good question. But at least the content was there. I'm sure at a lot of uh, universities before Huxley's time, you still could study the natural sciences. But could you make it your vocation? Um, and was there a whole faculty devoted to it? Well, that was a lot rarer, yeah. right? And and we've 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 done some digging, and we had some conversations yeah. yesterday about trying to figure out where in each nation the first faculty of natural sciences were. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's very much a nineteenth century thing, along with yep. along with these developments. Now, perhaps the most comprehensive vision. Yeah. It should not surprise us because because. <laughs> Uh, Abraham Kuyper did not do anything small, no. and he and he and he was a grand sort of theoretician uh, of many things, and one of those things is education. Yes, what is he up to in the Netherlands in the 19th century? Yeah, so he he is uh, one of the founders of the Free University. Um, again, its first president. He was a professor of theology there. Um, his famous fear sovereignty speech that a lot of people have, if they've read anything from him, they may have read that. Um, it is at the occasion, I believe it was in 1880, at the opening of the Free University. So it's this inaugural lecture. Um, and in fact, the topic is specifically education. He does talk about society and whatnot. And in fact, I think the two are related, which is really interesting and, and helpful, um, but it, often confusing to his readers. Um, but it's it's a lifelong concern of his, and and again, not just higher ed, but all but education. Um, you have the Netherlands uh, ha becomes a constitutional monarchy, and he founds the first modern political party in the Netherlands with the anti-revolutionary party, uh, and he cares about you know Klein Luden, the the little folk, um, and he he. Unlike Morris, is very pro-democratic. He he advocates to expand the franchise to get more of them to vote, and he wants even though he doesn't want them all to attend university, he does want them to be more educated. And that's something he does through his journalism. And he presumes people who study at his university will do in their communities. A lot of these folks are the rural poor. Yes. In uh, 
and, and regions in the Netherlands that are still sort of referred to as like the Netherlands Bible Belt. Yeah. Um, and these are the people that make up um, – a lot of these folks make up what becomes Abraham Kuyper's religious community. Mm-hmm. He, founds, he founds a political party. He yes. founds a denomination. He founds an educational a university. He's very, very busy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, yeah, these folks are at the center of his concerns. Yeah, I, I've told people uh, in the past that Abraham Kuyper is like the Dutch Alexander Hamilton, right? Um, you know, there's the the song um, from the, the Hamilton musical uh, where he it just talks about how, like, he he won't stop. Like, <laughs> he just there's nothing that can stop this guy. He's so prolific. Um, and it's very much true of Abraham Kuyper to the point that he had like three nervous breakdowns in his lifetime. He just overworked himself. Um, so his vision uh, for the the free university actually comes out in in a book that. I think a lot of people don't read, despite it being in English, or at least uh, an abridgment of it being in English since the 19th century. It's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating book. It's called The Encyclopedia of Sacred Theology. And I think, on the one hand, uh, theologians who try to read it quickly realize this is not a book about theology. Um, And so they lose interest and they don't read continue reading. And then other people don't read it because they're like, why would I read a book about theology? (laughs) Right? Um, What it is is a book about... uh, scholarship for him encyclopedia is the science which has as its object science itself and by science he has the the german understanding in mind meaning every academic discipline and so the, the purpose of the work is to detail the place of theology within the sciences meaning all scholarship and so you get in that work his theological grounding uh, and structure of the university um what faculties will they have and why do they have those faculties and um, and what is the goal of scholarship for him you know he says science has as his object all existing things like I mean it's the grandest scope you could possibly imagine literally everything that is the purpose um, and all of these things he presumes have a fundamental attachment to uh, our human life so for him there should be no more no less than five faculties Faculty of Theology, rooted in our humanity's relationship with God. Jurisprudence, rooted in humanity's relationship with each other. Um, So our social relations. Uh, The Faculty of Letters, or Philology, uh, is uh, rooted in our relationship to our own souls. Faculty of Medicine is rooted in our relationship to our bodies. And the Faculty of Natural Science, rooted in our relationship to the world around us. Um, And... What I, I like about Kuiper is that this, you know, he, these, of course, there's subdisciplines within all of these, um, but he speaks about the disciplines. And again, you can see this in that Sphere Sovereignty speech because most people read it. In fact, we, we published this with Lexham Press, a collection of Kuiper's uh, collected works of public theology. And that lecture was not put in the education volume. It was put on the charity and justice volume, even though it is his opening lecture (laughs) for the free university. It's about education. When he's talking about spheres, he's primarily, in that case, talking about sciences and disciplines, Um, but he presumes they're connected to what he called life spheres, um, that they can't be taken away. And you see this when, when you get at, oh, the purpose of the university is literally universal. It's to study absolutely everything, and then to ground it in our relationship to all those things. Um, And I like that a lot because now you can see, oh, there's a place 
for things like business and there's a place for things like art and things, you know, natural science. He, he grounds in those relationships. That's something that would have been pretty new at the time. Um, and, and it gives you a framework uh, I've, I've suggested creatively that you could expand on this. Um, in fact, the Free University has expanded, although I don't think as coherently as it could. I don't see how it's related to Kuiper's structuring of the departments. But you could say um, it's worthwhile to have a, a faculty of engineering and technology because we can study our relationship to man-made things. Or we could say, in economic terms, our relationship to capital, right? Um, and then I think it also makes sense to have a faculty of computer science because there you have kind of digital or virtual creations or reality, which has a distinct nature from, say, a tree, right? You know, natural science and gravity and whatever. It has has rules and has laws, and this, this didn't come from nowhere. For Kuiper, um, you know, God has planted the seeds of all the, the fruits of creation and all the fruits of human endeavor into creation from the beginning, and it's it's growing like a tree over time, and he expects it to continue to grow. Uh, and so his his people are sometimes frustrated with what seems like the unsystematic understanding of his thought. He doesn't write a lot of systematic work, so he writes a lot of occasional articles and speeches and things like that. Um, but I think it's great because it's an open system. He he's not trying to say, hey, guess what, guys? He's not like Hagel. Or, you know, something like that, saying, I got it all figured out. Everything in the world was leading to me and my philosophy. I mean, Kuiper does sometimes have a big head, but not that big of a head <laughs> about his work. Um, and so you have this very adaptable structure. And to get to, like, our present situation, um, you have to, of course, convince people that our relationship with God matters. But if they already believe that at, say, a Christian institution— I think this is a very coherent justification, not only for having a faculty of theology, but how, what purpose does it serve in relation to the other faculties? Well, all, every single subject can broach up against our relationship to God, right? And same thing with theology. It needs to learn from these other faculties. It needs to have them around to really be everything it could be. Now we're, to some degree, back to Newman's general understanding of liberal education, how the, the participants and the, the researchers and scholars and students in different disciplines learn from their interaction with one another, that it, it is a whole package. It's not just about specializing in one thing or the other. Um, so I like that a lot. And today, on the one hand, we have a crisis of the humanities. People don't understand what they're for anymore. And the people who like them don't understand how to tell people what they're for, in my opinion. Um, I don't think they do a good job. Um, and then on the other hand, I think we have various financial crises uh, in higher ed, and we probably are going to see more of that in the near future. But what that also signals to me is that there is an opportunity for entrepreneurial alternatives. And I've been very interested in really anything I hear about, even if it's so sort of thing that I think, like, well, I would never do that. That's not, you know, I have a friend uh, who uh, is has kind of started promoting this idea of private practice professors um, that find a way to get a sort of accreditation through university, but still kind of work independently and almost the exact opposite of Kuiper and the sort of thing I want, but it's interesting. And it's something that, you know, he's, he's putting forward to try. Um, we've interviewed um, Pano Canellos of University of Austin on Acton Line before. Um, I talked with uh, some folks at the Foundry, which is a, a local kind of ministry training institute that's a sort of 
you know, parallel higher ed institution for training church leaders. Um, and I'm very interested on people who are trying to make a new model work. And I think as much as I, you know, new models are good, the best new models are still rooted in something much deeper than them. And so I think everyone could maybe benefit from looking a little more at the 19th century and, and some of these thinkers and some of the, the con conflicts and contexts uh, of that time. There's a dynamism here that I think you have a lot of people in church school contexts in um, in a sort of sort of sort of a, a conservative educational mentality that you know they like they like styling things as like the liberal arts or classical education. Mm -hmm. As if there was one thing we used to do that yeah. if we just went back to it, we'd be great. Now, there are many things we used to do that were great. And sure. there's many things we used to do that are better than many of the things we're doing today. Mm -hmm. But it's not as simple as that. It's, no. it's one of those things. There's a fascinating, you know, I was looking back at some of the, if you, if you actually go back to like the early modern period, where you know classics is very much a part of the curriculum. Well, this is this is revived in the Renaissance, yep. and if you look at the texts they select, they don't select the texts that they teach because of their great ideas, but because of their style. Yeah, because the yeah. The, 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 uh, the because the purpose was not. At that time, preserving this civilization, but getting you an excellent sort of background in rhetoric, right? Um, right. Rather than <laughs> rather than this, yeah. And I think you know, I think you know, the sort of Kuyperian notion, the sort of the, one of the threads that you see in Kuyper, Morris, and Newman is this is about, in some sense, getting to the truth of things. Yes. Um, yeah, they, it's they not. All yeah, have an objective view of truth. Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think and I think that's 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 the place you need to start with, and that might involve new innovations. That might involve going back and looking at what has has been done before. Mm -hmm. even, even looking at some of the failed projects in yeah. the past is very important, and that's and that's and that's one of those things to keep in mind as we as we have this conversation. One of the reasons we're having this conversation is because this is a crisis because there aren't any easy answers. Yes, yeah, and I, the nineteenth century is so great that let's say that is your ideal time. When you actually look at it, what you find is a bunch of people trying new things. Whether it be founding new institutions like Morris, Kuyper, Newman, or trying to reconceptualize the institutions they're at, like Huxley, um, or you know places like Harvard and 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 where else where they they very much changed their vision for what they were doing for better and worse. Um, that's what was going on, and that's what people now have a sort of nostalgia for. And I don't think they're wrong to have it, but it's not a simple matter of, okay, we just need to reproduce the same recipe. You know, it's, it's we have to look at our context. We have to, you know, in a very liberal way, uh, try to learn to adapt the sort of mindset these people had, um, and I think some better than others, um, for tailoring an education to 
our context and the needs of free society today, because free society still needs educated citizens. And if you don't believe me, get on social media sometime uh, and notice the the great dearth of classical humanistic rhetoric <laughs> in, in the way people talk about things. Even for that purpose alone, I think we can agree uh, there's something valuable uh, that that we're missing out on in, in major ways to the point that people are questioning whether it is worth it anymore to send their kids to higher ed. They, they say, you know, this just isn't what it was for me. And to some degree, they're right. The price tag is higher and the quality of education is in many cases demonstrably less. Um, not, I'm not actually a total naysayer. I still think there's, there's a lot of measurable value to getting a college degree, but um, but it depends on the discipline now. There are some that it, you'd be better off with just a high school diploma. And that's a scary position for parents and for young adults who want a better life for the next generation. And this was the sure tried and true way of getting it. It was go to college, get that degree, take that extra four years or however many, and then start your career. Well, we're trying to refigure out what does it all look like? And these are really important questions. And and it takes it's going to take a lot of really smart people, I think, thinking it through, but also being willing to take those risks, whether it be founding those new schools, teaching courses, developing programs, but also investing. Um, last year, um, King's College in New York, not to be confused with King College, London. The um, King's College. Yeah, the King's College. Um, unfortunately, due to budget issues, had to close down. Um, at the same time, there was, I, I can't remember his name now, but it was a public thing. But there was a, a prominent conservative donor who gave something like $200 million to Harvard. King's College needed about $2 million, at least in the short term, to stay afloat. Um, that tells me that even conservative, perhaps, I don't know if this person's religious, but perhaps even Christian-minded people with the means to invest in a project like this or, you know, Christian education as a lot of people want it to continue to be, really, they're not getting the message. They're not seeing a vision worth investing in. Maybe that's on them, but maybe that's also on the people who support uh, the idea, as I do, of Christian higher education, of liberal arts education, uh, and its value for a free society. We need to think through this better so that we can even just have a better sales pitch. Well, we're going to start thinking through it on a regular basis here on Acton Line. This is going to be a continuing series. You know, Dylan said we're going to need a lot of smart people to think through this. We're going to hopefully bring a lot of those smart people on. And then that, we'll solve it. And No, no, no. <laughs> then... Hopefully that's a catalyst yes. for this exploration and this growth and this discovery, figuring out what works and what might not work and figuring out uh, how to organize the pursuit of human truth towards human ends. Thank you all for joining us and we'll see you next time on Acting Live. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.